Welcome again, friends, to our service this afternoon when our text, as we hear from the living God in His Word, is Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17, which makes this the eighth sermon in this series from Matthew's Gospel. Our text this afternoon is the start of a very large section of Matthew that will run from here all the way until chapter 16, as we'll explain later. So far in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 11, we've been introduced to Jesus of Nazareth, Israel's Messiah, and the Son of God. Chapters 1 and 2 established Jesus' identity, and they detailed his protection from some early threats to his life. Chapter 3 recounted the preparation for Jesus' ministry as John the Baptist prepared the people and the Holy Spirit prepared Jesus. Last week in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, we saw how Jesus' period of personal preparation in the wilderness and the temptations he faced proved his fidelity as the Son of God. So that now when we come to chapter 4, verses 12 to 25, that is the whole rest of chapter 4, everything's in place now, at least as far as Matthew wants to, to show us. Jesus' messianic mission is ready to be launched. So we're going to spend two Sundays on this second half of chapter 4. Today, in verses 12 to 17, we're focused on how the gospel of the kingdom brings light to the world. Then next Sunday is actually All Saints Sunday, so we'll be focused on that occasion for the service, which means that it's two weeks from now that we'll continue into verses 18 to 25 of chapter 4, when we'll focus on how the gospel of the kingdom is God's power for salvation. So today, it's the gospel of the kingdom brings light to the world, and in two weeks, the gospel of the kingdom is God's power for salvation. That's what Matthew emphasizes, I think, in this opening summary of Jesus' ministry. So let's begin in verses 12 to 17. Just as in chapter 2, there's a focus on geography here, isn't there? Matthew first explains what is to be the geographical setting of the Messiah's mission, how where Jesus is in this stage of his ministry is itself a fulfillment of the Scriptures. Only before we come to that, one of the possibly puzzling things here is that we don't know how much time passes between verse 11 and verse 12 of Matthew 4. In verse 11, where Glenn was last week, Jesus had successfully passed the temptations, and it says, the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And then the next thing we read in verse 12 says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So it might surprise you to learn that most 
readers of Scripture suggest that there's perhaps as much as a year that passes between Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist and John's arrest, that that would have been a time when Jesus remained in Judea, in the southern part of Israel. There's no reason here to suppose, to suppose that John's arrest immediately followed upon the baptism. And in fact, if you read John's gospel, it's clear Jesus did stay in the south for some time early in his ministry. So I think what we have here in Matthew isn't an account of necessarily the very next immediate thing that happened, but instead is a fast forward in the timeline to now when John was arrested and Jesus leaves the Judean territory to withdraw into Galilee. But if the chronology isn't made explicit here, what is made clear is that now with John removed from the scene, the spotlight is entirely on Jesus. Jesus' ministry has entered a new phase now, in other words. And for Matthew, that's where the account of Jesus' ministry can begin. Of central importance to Matthew in this passage is the fact that Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee. Five times in the second half of chapter 4, Galilee is mentioned by name. And I don't know if you can picture this in your mind, or if you happen to have in your own Bible one of those maps of Palestine in the time of Jesus that you could look at, but it's not too hard to grasp. I'll just make a couple of basic points about geography. The simple thing to keep in view here is that Galilee, while Judea, which is the area that includes Jerusalem and Bethlehem, is in the south. And on the eastern side of these two places, Galilee in the north and Judea in the south, on the eastern side of Galilee, you, of course, have the Sea of Galilee. The western side would be heading towards the Mediterranean. The eastern side is the Sea of Galilee in the north, which then flows, from which flows the Jordan River southward to the Dead Sea, which is in the eastern part of Judea. Only the most significant thing to understand, once you've got this very basic geography in view, is the fact that in the minds of most Jews in the Judean region, Galilee was not a highly respected place. Is the Christ to come from Galilee? The people ask in John chapter 7, verse 40. No prophet arises from Galilee, verse 52 of that same chapter in John says. Ever since the Assyrian campaign had reduced the region called Galilee to a province, under an Assyrian governor way back in 732 B.C., that region had experienced great turmoil and, in fact, the forced infiltration of Gentile influence. To control the vanquished lands, so we're going way back in Israel's history to when the kingdom of Assyria had conquered parts of the north, to control vanquished lands, the Assyrians deported most of the native population, and then imported outsiders. 
so that the inhabitants are called the people dwelling in darkness in verse 16 of our text because that was the description of the Jews in Isaiah's time. The quote from chapter verse 16 is from Isaiah. In those in Isaiah's time who awaited deliverance while they lived among the hopelessness of the Gentiles. Now, in more recent days to the New Testament, according to the non-biblical text of 1 Maccabees, the Jewish population in Galilee by 164 B.C. was so small that it could be transported to Judea for protection. It wouldn't be until the year 104 B.C., so almost six, more than 600 years after Assyria had conquered the region of Galilee, it wouldn't be until 104 B.C. that the region was, in fact, forced to return to Judaism. And that meant that by Jesus' day, the population of Galilee was more mixed between Jew and Gentile. You had more Jews returning to the area of Galilee. But you must, see, you must understand that the stigma of all those years of Gentile occupation and infiltration had left their mark. It was still an area known as Galilee of the Gentiles, as verse 15 of our passage says. And the point is that it was there that Jesus went after John was arrested. Verse 13 says, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, Matthew here doesn't relay what we know from Luke about the reason for Jesus' relocation from Nazareth to Capernaum. In Luke chapter 4, we read about Jesus being rejected in Nazareth, when he speaks of Elijah being sent not to the widows of Israel, but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And when he speaks of Elisha healing not the lepers in Israel, but only Naaman the Syrian. And the people in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4 are filled with wrath. Why? Because Jesus had declared to them that the gospel would be the light of the world, not just the light for Israel that his ministry as the Messiah would include Gentiles. For that, they tried to kill him, if you remember that Luke 4 text. All of which I say as a reminder that though Matthew doesn't make the point as explicitly, animosities between Jews and Gentiles ran very high. So that when Jesus launches his post-John ministry in Galilee, we can understand that that's not a popular decision in some circles. All Matthew says, and it's easy just to read right past it, is that Jesus left Nazareth. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, Matthew says. That's a good translation of a verb that normally carries the sense of leaving behind. And, of course, it's Luke's gospel that fills in the reason why. After leaving behind hostile Nazareth, Jesus makes Capernaum his base of operations and his new hometown for the length of his ministry in Galilee. 
Now, Capernaum is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was a busy lakeside town that was set among other thriving villages, which depended largely on the fishing industry that came from the sea. Or we would call it a lake, really, but the terminology in, in here is the Sea of Galilee. There was a centurion in Capernaum, a Roman centurion, as we find out in Matthew 8. There was a customs post, as we find out as well in this gospel, for all of which perhaps indicated that Capernaum was something of a local administrative center. Population of the town of Capernaum was perhaps as high as 10,000, though estimates vary. And while Capernaum had its resident Roman officials, it was a pretty traditional Jewish town. But what captures Matthew's attention in all of this is that Jesus' move to Capernaum is in fulfillment of the Scriptures, that Jesus hasn't returned to Galilee to be at home as before, but by the will of God to begin the work he was commissioned to do. Critical to Matthew's understanding is that Jesus was now in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, reading here from verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And this is Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now the land of Zebulun and Naphtali refers to those two northern tribes of Israel which bordered the Sea of Galilee. Zebulun was actually to the south, technically where Nazareth lies, and Naphtali was to the north in Galilee, where Capernaum lies. And as we mentioned, these were areas defeated early on by the Assyrians that subsequently became largely Gentile areas. Hence, the prophet Isaiah's language of Galilee of the Gentiles. And of course, still now in Jesus' day, a large population of Gentiles lived in those areas. Certainly the highest proportion of any part of Palestine at the time of Jesus. The way of the sea in verse 15 is a little difficult to interpret exactly, but some scholars suggest that this was a reference to a major trade route in Isaiah's day that in fact in the first century still ran through this region to the Mediterranean Sea. Perhaps what Matthew wants to emphasize in all of this is that Jesus' ministry will extend far beyond the physical confines of Galilee, that it will influence those traveling through the region, people from beyond the Jordan, and ultimately the Gentiles. Whether or not that's precisely correct, the point of the Isaiah quotation is clear. It would be in despised Galilee that the light would dawn. It would be in the place where people lived in spiritual darkness. This is far geographically and socially from the religious center of Jerusalem and Judea. In the region and shadow of death, the Isaiah language goes, where the Gentile influence was so prominent. That's where the light 
has done. That word dawned suggests that the light first shone brilliantly there, that there Jesus would begin his own proclamation of the gospel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was all God's prophesied plan, Matthew's saying, that from of old the Messiah was promised to Galilee of the Gentiles. This would be where the ministry of Jesus would take root and grow. Galilee and the surrounding areas are going to be the setting for the Messiah's mission that takes up nearly half of this gospel until it reaches its climax near Caesarea Philippi far to the north in Matthew chapter 16. In other words, it's Jesus' Galilean ministry that's now in view for a long time in Matthew. Occasionally, we'll see Jesus will move outside Galilee proper, but all the time he remains in the north. It will only be from Matthew 16, verse 21, that Jesus then sets off for Judea, where, of course, the climactic scenes of the gospel will be set. Which means that basically, what we get in Matthew for the next 12 or so chapters is an anthology of events and teachings designed to convey for us the overall impression of Jesus' public ministry and activity in the north, in the vicinity of Galilee. That's where the majority of the words and deeds of Jesus find their place, including, of course, the Sermon on the Mount that begins in chapter 5. And the whole point is... This isn't where the Messiah was supposed to be or spend so much of his time. One familiar with Israel's history may have expected the Messiah to focus his ministry on Jerusalem, the center of religious power and prestige and indeed prophetic hope. Galilee is in many ways the antithesis of Jerusalem. And in the eyes of the religious leaders, in the eyes of most of the Jews in Judea, in fact, Galilee was not where this is all supposed to happen. Many, as we've said before, many were hoping for a restoration of power and glory to the house of David in Jerusalem. But Matthew sees things differently. The kingdom isn't coming in that way. Galilee is where the disciples will come from. Galilee is where the light of the gospel will shine first and brightest. Because it's in Galilee that the hint of the Old Testament hope for all the nations begins. And crucially, this is where it ends in Matthew's gospel too. Have you ever thought about this? Where does Jesus go after the resurrection? Where does the whole thing end in Matthew 28? Well, it ends in Galilee. The angel says to the women at the empty tomb, Go quickly, tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. The resurrected Lord himself tells the women a few verses later, Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Why Galilee? What's at the very end of Matthew? 
you know it. It's the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been the same Galilee of the Gentiles, that the resurrected Lord would send out his astonished disciples to begin the gospel's movement to the world. And here we are at the start of it all in Matthew 4. Galilee is to be the starting point of Jesus' mission. His mission, of course, primarily to Israel, but always with the Gentiles in view from the very start. It is to be the starting point of Jesus' mission as it will be the starting point of the church's mission to the nations. It's the reviled Galilee of the Gentiles where the light of the Messiah has risen. The star that the Magi saw at its rising has now become a light that shines upon those sitting in spiritual darkness. The presence in the ministry of the Messianic King is dawning, and we'll be looking at the brightness of that ministry for many months to come. But as we conclude this afternoon, let's have a brief look at Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom. Matthew says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That verse, I think, is the heading of this whole main second division of the Gospel of Matthew that runs from here to chapter 16, verse 20, as we've already discussed. And it's an echo, of course, of John's own proclamation in chapter 3, verse 2. Only while the words are the same, there's a difference now, if you think about it. When John the Baptist speaks those words, they're placed in the Old Testament context that highlights John's function as the forerunner who looks forward to the kingdom. When Jesus speaks those words, they're linked with an Old Testament context here that insists that he himself fulfills the promises of a light rising to shine on the Gentiles. The point now is that Jesus is the one who's preaching and teaching and healing inaugurates the presence of the kingdom of heaven for the whole world. We could say that with Jesus, the kingdom has drawn so near that it has actually arrived, or dawned at least. We'll have a lot to say about the kingdom as we continue in Matthew's gospel because it's central to Jesus' teaching. But as we come to the end of our time this afternoon, let me quote from one author who summarizes the concept uh, pretty well, I think. He says this, According to Scripture, the kingdom is near when Jesus comes because God has given him the authority and power to rule. The point is that God's power and authority break into history in a new way in Jesus' teaching. Jesus' healings, and Jesus' assault on the strongholds of Satan. Therefore, although the kingdom is not a political entity with geographical borders, it does manifest itself in space and time among God's people. As Jesus' followers carry out God's will individually and corporately, 
publicly and privately, the kingdom comes. To enter the kingdom is not to cross a border, passport in hand. It is to yield to God's rule or reign. When God's kingdom come, it comes, His will is done because His disciples accept and fulfill His will in every sphere of life. We'll begin to see this even next week in the calling of, of the first disciples. What that means then is that the kingdom has dawned and is present in some ways now, even as ultimately the fullness of that kingdom remains in the future. Jesus' disciples understand that the kingdom is a present reality, even as they also know the kingdom is growing towards a great climax when in a future time in history, God will root out every cause of sin and people from every tribe and tongue and nation will stream into the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus says. For us, it means that if we know God submit to his rule, we should want that commitment to permeate every aspect of our lives. We should aspire to show that God reigns in all that we do, for it is the same Jesus who began his ministry in Galilee with the proclamation of the kingdom who ends it in Galilee with a clear command to extend that kingdom until the time when it is fulfilled. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. How could it be otherwise? For the kingdom that is now at hand in Jesus' teaching and ministry will one day be universal in scope. Matthew quotes here in our passage from Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. But of course, it's only a few verses later in that great chapter of Isaiah that we come to the fullness of the kingdom brought about ultimately by Jesus. For to us a child is born, Isaiah writes. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I trust we are already part of that kingdom living for Jesus our King now, even as we wait for the day when we'll live and reign with Him forever. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.